When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 193. Well, just ahead, the largest U.S. cryptocurrency exchange, Coinbase, trying to make nice with the SEC. And how one company is suffering despite fantastic demand for its lithium. And an up-and-coming Swedish drug maker aiming to fight kidney disease and winning over regulators everywhere from the U.S. to China. We're going to talk to the CEO of Kalidus. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And perhaps you're listening to this podcast on the Apple iTunes app. You click the little plus button in the upper right-hand corner. You'll be following us. Make sure that you will download every single show. And the drill down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled, technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to talk about the business stories that might help explain the movement of some stocks. We care about the businesses more than the stocks. Joining me to help me in that exploration is Isaac Webster, our executive producer in Los Angeles, where I'll be later this week. Isaac. Hello, Corey. What, no, what is the purpose of your visit again? Uh, checking up on me, huh? Tour. Co- checking up on you. College tours for my kids. A little time off. It's ski nice. week, so why not head to the beach? It's a little cold for the beach, though. Yes? Here, yeah, you don't want to be going to the beach here in LA. It's a cold week. It's going to be raining while you're here. Um, it's going to be raining pretty miserable. But you're, it's like Armageddon in all Los that. Angeles. People in Los Angeles yeah. flip out when it rains. They run to the window. They look outside <laughs> like it's space aliens dropping. Uh, the, people generally don't know how to drive in the rain, even when it's drizzling. That's true. It's a funny place like that. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Coinbase. Coinbase trades under COIN, COIN, and shares have risen 76% since the start of the year 2023, but are still lower by 66% over the past 12 months. What's new with so, Coinbase? So, yeah, you think the, the crypto is volatile. Look at, look at Coinbase itself. Coinbase reporting earnings um, this quarter, and I thought it was an interesting time to look at them with all the excitement around FTX and and I think just kind of a general um, uh, U.S. regulatory crackdown on all things crypto. Um, and I thought it was maybe a useful time for us to talk about staking and proof of work versus proof of stake. Do you know about these things, Isaac? These are these are. I don't know what is sta- what you're saying. What does staking okay, so, mean? Um, uh, it has nothing to do with vampires. Um, so uh, damn things like Bitcoin. 
as if there are things like Bitcoin. Bitcoin came with a really novel concept called proof of work, which said that for to prove that a, a Bitcoin coin had been created to mine a coin actually involved mm-hmm. uh, completing a cryptographic puzzle that gets more and more difficult over time, making it harder to make more and more Bitcoins. And so in order to show that, to prove that a Bitcoin had been created, it was essentially to prove that the Bitcoin could do all of this work. And what they found over time, of course, is this was not just using, lot, as intended, lots of uh, becoming more difficult over time, but uh, it was also using tons and tons of energy and computing energy. So proof of stake is a different concept. And, and uh, big cryptocurrencies like XRP or Ether uses pr- uh, Ether now. Ether didn't used to, but Ether now. They use uh, proof of stake. In other words, they um, rely on the validators, the nodes of the network, to prove that uh, that the thing exists by, uh, in this in the case of Ether, piling up uh, a handful of tokens, 32 ETH, um, worth about $52,000 worth of ETH, um, as collateral to validate that a transaction happened on the network. So you make a transaction on the network, someone has to put some stake into the game to uh, validate that transaction. And in return, gotcha. those who stake their Ethereum will be rewarded, uh, 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 which is uh, an incentive to create nodes in the network. It's an incentive to create the network. It's an incentive for people to set up computers, to become network nodes and validate transactions, and to put some ETH into the into the game. As a result, they, they get a reward, which now stands at about 4%. That's what staking is. So gotcha. the, that's a little bit of a laborious process, and some people who buy ETH might not uh, have the ability to or the, the interest in taking the time to create a node, but they can put their ETH into a, into a, uh, if they're going to own it anyway, they might be willing to stake it and earn that 4% or have someone else do it for them. So some of the big exchanges like Coinbase, like Kraken, like FTX and its day of glory um, would uh, in, and essentially pay a staking uh, reward to customers who would keep their ETH parked at those exchanges. But the methodology for doing that has run afoul of the Securities and Exchange Commission. So a few weeks ago, uh, there was an announcement that the SEC had gone after Kraken, a longtime Coinbase competitor. And Kraken uh, kind of quickly agreed to end its crypto staking as a service business and also pay $30 million to the SEC uh, because uh, the SEC decided that what they were promising investors was a security, a return on their investment of leaving the ETH parked there, and that that was a violation of securities laws. So... There has been speculation, let's turn back to Coinbase now. So there has been speculation that Coinbase uh, could grow a great big business because as the largest cryptocurrency exchange, it is holding lots and lots of ETH, lots of uh, Ethereum tokens for uh, their customers and that they could generate lots and lots of money in staking. But if staking is going to be illegal, according to the SEC, that could be a big hit, not just to the current big business at Coinbase, which is doing you know, it's under $400 million a quarter in revenues. That's a lot of money. Um, it's also losing a ton of money at the current, at the time, although now they say they're going to, they're going to strive towards being permanently profitable, put that aside. So without staking, it's going to be harder for them to be profitable because that's a very high margin business for them. They're already operating what are essentially nodes on the Ethereum network anyway. So this would be some nice gravy. And what Coinbase took great pains to explain on their conference call in the last week was how their staking products are not securities, how they are merely passing along some of the rewards, most of the rewards to their customers, 
They're trying to explain to their customers how it works. They're not promising them a certain return. They're just saying, if we get paid for holding your crypto, we'll pay you back most of the money we get paid for that crypto. Your thoughts, Isaac? Am I explaining this okay? I mean, that. Uh, yeah, I'm following. I'm following. I see now, what the I problem wish that is here. The Morgan Stanleys and Schwab's and Goldman Sachs, the Fidelities of the world, would do that for stocks, which are securities, are different. But right. you know, if you own a stock yeah. and they loan it out to another uh, individual or another um, a hedge fund or something to short that stock, they get paid interest. They get paid a borrow rate, don't. it's what it's called. And they don't pass that on to their customers almost ever. You might mm -hmm. own a highly volatile security like a uh, or a, a hard to short security, like a Silvergate Capital Bank, speaking of crypto, right? That's the crypto bank in Southern California. Um, it, it, they, they could loan that stock out and get 20, 30% paid to them as a, as a investment bank and, and as, a, as a brokerage, I'm sorry, and not pay that back to their customers, not even let their customers know they're getting paid that. That's not what Coinbase is doing. Coinbase is saying, hey, we're going to get paid because we own this and we're going to give you most of that. So mm -hmm. it was interesting in the conference call this week to hear the chief legal officer for Coinbase, Paul Gruel, say so uh, insistently that their staking products are not securities and they are not affected by the news of the crackdown on Kraken by the SEC. Here's Paul Gruel. The Coinbase's staking products are not securities, and so they are not affected uh, by this news. Uh, staking on Coinbase continues to be available to our, our customers, and staked assets continue to earn rewards. Uh, the staking products that we offer on Coinbase are fundamentally different from the yield products that were described in the reinforcement action against Kraken. Um, the differences matter. Um, just to highlight a few of them, uh, first and foremost, uh, on Coinbase, customer assets always remain theirs. At all times, uh, customers retain the title to and ownership of their tokens. And of course, we hold all user assets, including tokens, one-to-one. -one. Uh, another important difference is that our fees are tethered to realities. They're determined by the network protocols and commissions that uh, we, are, we take are fully disclosed in our health center. Uh, on Coinbase, our customers have a right to their returns. We can't simply just decide not to pay any returns at all. And critically, uh, Coinbase customers have deep, transparent insights into our financials because, of course, uh, Coinbase is a publicly uh, traded company with public audited financials. Uh, the bottom line is that uh, Coinbase customers have access to proper disclosures. Coinbase has always disclosed critical information for its staking uh, users, such as what happens to assets when they're staked. And we do that in our retail user agreement. Uh, rules making clear these distinctions would provide uh, very real clarity. And we think uh, the public shouldn't have to parse complaints in federal court in, under in order to understand what a regulator expects. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice if we knew what the rules of the road were instead of just having the SEC coming with uh, uh, with their dogs, their whips, their bullhorns. I don't know if that's actually how they do it, but Coinbase it's, is it is pretty clear that the, roads, the rules of the road are not too clear in the U.S., and that's not been good for developing blockchain businesses in this country. And those businesses are just going to Singapore, and they're going to Switzerland, and they're building companies there. Um, right. Uh, it would be nice to know what's legal and what's illegal so the crooks would go away and the legal products could develop here and do great things that I think are still possible. But I'm editorializing. That's not what you're here for. We'll move on. Corey, what is your next drill down? Well, I want to talk about uh, an interesting company in the lithium business. 
called Albemarle. How do you pronounce that? Albemarle? Albemarle. Albemarle. It trades under ALB and shares have risen 14% since the start of 2023 and risen 27% over the past 12 months. This is a mining Albemarle. company. Well, mining company. They, they sell the products that come from, from mining. And in the case of lithium, there's different ways to, that don't involve mining that also involve um, these giant floodplains where they essentially dry out um, um, toxic lakes and get developed lithiums. So I can't exactly call that mining, but this is about a 150-year-old mining company that has a very strong focus on, not exclusively, but focus on lithium. And lithium, as we know, is uh, uh, being used in all of a sudden everything all around us. It's on the computer mm-hmm. that is recording the conversation we're, we're having right now. It is on the cell phone that's next to this computer that is muted, so you can't hear it. It's on the Apple Watch in my on my arm. And most importantly, tons and tons of lithium is being used and expected to be used in electric cars. Electric cars use an enormous amount of lithium. Um, there is our predictions that we only have uh, something like 40% of the possible lithium for all the plans for car makers right now. So you would think a developer like Albemarle uh, making lithium products uh, and getting lithium anywhere they can, Chile, Silver Peak, Nevada, Western Australia, that this would be a great time for them. But the price of lithium is tanking quietly. Lithium carbonate, carb, lithium carbonate prices, I said, in China um, fell there in February. They're at the lowest price they've been in a year, down 30% from their all-time high in just November. And why is that? Uh, is there more supply? Is there worse demand? What's going on in, in China? I mean, uh, Isaac, you can see in my show notes what this chart looks like. Do we not know what the deal is? I to mean, me, is it, it's, to is me, it's a, a hill. That, this chart looks like a hill that is too steep to uh, snowboard down. That's a black diamond. That's a double black diamond. That's a double black diamond descent from November prices. Um, so yeah. on the uh, on the conference call in the last quarter for Albemarle, we heard from the president of energy storage, Eric Norris, uh, talking about what how 2022 looked and how it's so different right now, largely because of China. Uh, we've come out, out of a period of time in 2022 of remarkable growth that exceeded expectations in terms of EV production and was going at a pretty heady pace when, when the decision was taken to reopen the economy. And then, and then of course, you know what happened thereafter. I mean, the, the virus spread quite rapidly and it, it did sap consumer demand at a time when seasonally it was, it was weak anyway because of the lunar new year. Um, I think there, there's much been made about the subsidies as well rolling off, but those have been rolling off for several years. Some of them have been extended at the provincial level, and some of the more meaningful subsidies are at the state and local level anyway. So we we, we don't think that that's as big, a, big an issue, and we've certainly seen that in prior years have initially a, a spike in demand immediately before the subsidy comes off, a drop in demand right after it comes off, and then a rebound in demand. Our projection and our customers' view is that this year, particularly in the second half, We'll see that growth that's projected of close to 40%. In the meantime, people are buying under contracts but not venturing into the spot market and bringing their, in China, bringing their inventories down quite low because we're in this post-holiday period with still some uncertainty in the very near term. We expect that to be short-lived, though, with a demand uh, rebound later this year. So, I don't know if you like short-lived or short-lived, but that's how he sees this going forward, that this uh, this slowdown in China it's temporary and that it's going to come back pretty quick. And of course, they've got to make their decisions about what to mine and when to mine it 
um, well in advance of this stuff coming to market, uh, but a tougher time than one might have expected uh, for Albemarle because they're selling a product that we know over time will be so hot. Uh, no pun intended. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Dropbox. Dropbox uh, trades under DBX and shares are dropping, have dropped around 7% since the start of 2023, and they're lower by 2% a year. So that's not so bad if you look at the overall market. What's going on with Dropbox? Right. But if you, you talk about the double black diamond, I mean, that, you know, the, what, what's happened to the stock in the last <laughs> week looks, it's just like falling off a cliff. It's been a or rough perhaps, week, but it's just been a week. Yeah. Perhaps falling off of a San Francisco building. Because that's what this looks like in the stock chart. And that's one of the reasons uh, uh, for this decline. So let's look at the big picture. Revenue's up 6% over last year. Uh, annual recurring revenue's up 11% to $2.5 billion. That's a good thing. Uh, the number, the user number, the user count, uh, is just shy of 18 million, uh, 17.8 million, up from 16.8 million a year before, although revenue per customer was down a little bit. But... The thing that I found so interesting, maybe because I'm sitting here. Yeah, in all Santa those things sound okay. Show, yeah. Not great, but okay. Well, modest, yeah, they're single okay. Single digit increase in sales. Double digit increase in recurring revenues. But the company's taken a huge write-off because of their real estate assets. $163 million write-off. And these are mostly rental, they're just leases that they've got, that they've uh, signed up for. Because they because of remote work. So this thing that Dropbox has made more possible, working virtually, has become a real uh, noose around their neck because they've signed up for so much uh, real estate space in San Francisco where companies are not returning and companies or other companies are working virtually. Indeed, uh, Dropbox itself in, in 2020, the end of 2020, announced that the company was going to be virtual first, that the first assumption about your job is that you won't come to work. That remote work will be the primary experience for all employees. And the day-to-day default for individual mm. work, that's I'm reading straight from their website, uh, virtual first. And so virtual first means they don't need the real estate they've got. The problem is when they went to sublet it, they found out no one else wanted the real estate they got, which eventually <laughs> has led to this $163 million write-off here is the chief financial officer of Dropbox, Timothy Regan. We have actually executed a few subleases in, in years past in San Francisco. We were relatively quick to market with our subleasing plans, but the market has deteriorated with many companies reducing their real estate footprint. And there's sure. certainly been an increase in supply of real estate for sublease, which has pushed out our anticipated time to lease. And so we originally anticipated we would sublease San Francisco in mid-2023, now we expect we won't begin subleasing until mid-25. We've also lowered the rates we expect to receive. So we've certainly been uh, active and we continue to be active in partnering with our landlord and in searching for uh, subleases. But at this point in time, uh, this is our revised assumption, just given what we're facing at this moment. So this reflects what I'm seeing as I walk the streets of San Francisco. There are more people on the streets of San Francisco now than there have been at any time in the last three years. Traffic's uh, worse than it's been, or at least uh, more robust than it's been in the last three years, based on my observations. We've seen some of these numbers. And yet the city of San Francisco has come back to the office less than any major city in America. Still about 40% of the number of badges into buildings and so on uh, in the downtown area in particular. Um, and Timothy Regan having to face up to that. 
back. Interesting note, uh, Timothy Regan is actually the father of Trish Regan, our former colleague. That's, That's not true. I made that up. I made that up. Okay. I was just hoping you'd have some Trish Regan comments. Um, Loved working with Trish I Regan. A, I, we had so much I fun. I really did. Uh, yeah. But why is it that San Francisco is is behind in far as return to work? That's a great question. Um, I think that um, there is an, um, San Francisco people tend to embrace new ideas maybe more than just about anywhere, any major city in America. And if one of those ideas is not coming to the office, they're all in. Um, okay. I think that uh, it's also, it, it's a, the, the people who work in San Francisco have been uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, not the last 30, but San Francisco, the city of San Francisco has had more tech workers in the last decade or so uh, than any other major city in America. And tech companies mm -hmm. have been the greatest uh, uh, adoption of this virtual work, work, remote work concept has been the most uh, at tech companies. And so it's going to happen the most here. Throw in uh, the biggest number of layoffs that we've had in any other, right. in, in any industry in America. So you've got layoffs, you've got uh, a robust adoption of remote work. Right. And you know, there's other nice stuff yeah. to do than come to the office around here. I have Mountains, to say having- You can walk having, the dog, you can go skiing. The surfing's yeah. fantastic if you're going to deal with the cold water. You know, when I, just a side note, when I, when I um, was working in New York for our former employer and then having to do a side, a side job for our employer in San Francisco, coming back and forth between San Francisco and New York, the, the difference between the work ethic in San Francisco compared I wasn't to New gonna York go there. was vast. It was shocking. I'll say San Francisco, New Yorkers have a hard, hard time for me to digest this. As a New Yorker who adapted to San Francisco, it was hard yeah. going into a coffee shop and having the guy's most important task, not getting your coffee, but asking you about your day. Just yeah. give me a cup of coffee. I got work to do. Let's just say there were lots of necessary pats on backs and good job. And here's a blue ribbon for all my San Francisco colleagues that I didn't need to pass out when I was working with my New York colleagues. Send anyway, your letters that's a straight to topic. Isaac Webster at, uh, yeah, look, <laughs> I will agree. It was very eye opening. Work ethic here looks very different. There's, there is a great concern about yeah. work-life balance here in the Bay area that, uh, that uh, New York doesn't have. Yeah. Yeah. That's one, that's one, that's one thing I would agree about. It could be because people in New York have worse kidneys. Huh? What a weird segue. I don't know that and that's true, but a, I like we're trying to segue. An unfact. An unfact. But our next guest. <laughs> an unfact. About Tune in for unfacts. Kaliditas, CEO, Renee uh, Aguil Lucander uh, has a really interesting company that's dealing with uh, the growing problem of failing kidneys uh, in, uh, in the medical arena and uh, a fascinating conversation right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. 
And welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're glad to have you. We're also glad to have Renee Aguiar Luxander, who's the CEO of Calidas Therapeutics, uh, based in Sweden, joining us from Stockholm. Glad to have you. Um, what what problem is your company trying to solve principally? I know you've got sort of three drugs in approval, right? So actually what we're trying to do is we're focusing on, on uh, developing novel uh, medications for rare indications. Uh, and we focus mainly on uh, the kidney, liver for this uh, at this point in time. So we have one drug that's recently been approved. So it's a commercial product in one of these rare kidney diseases called IgA nephropathy, which is an autoimmune disease of the kidney. Uh, and in our pipeline, uh, we're also developing uh, things for, uh, for example, PBC, primary biliary cholangitis, which is a liver disease, also an orphan indication. And how big is the uh, affected population? I, I've, I've seen it expressed not as a global figure, but sort of broken down by regions. Yeah, so actually uh, this particular disease, the IJ nephropathy, is a rare disease both in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, and the estimates of the prevalence is about maybe 130 to 150,000 in the U.S., about 200,000 in Europe. In Asia, though, for example, it is not a rare disease. It's actually quite common in places like China. Uh, so there are millions of people actually with this particular uh, kidney disease in China. And that's why I think people prefer to break it down into different regions because it does seem to have a different prevalence uh, in different kind of geographic regions. Yeah, I was struck by that when I looked at the numbers and I thought, okay, there are a lot of people in China, Corey, settle down. But wh why is it that this drug, uh, that, that this uh, condition is so much more expressed in China? It's an excellent in question. Asia. I wish I had an excellent answer for you. Uh, but actually, it, it is somewhat unknown as to why this is so much more prevalent uh, in China. Uh, there is a genetic kind of predisposition that's required for this disease, but it also requires certain triggers. You can have the genetic background and not develop the disease. Um, so actually, what it is that it could be environmental, bacterial, uh, you know, dietary, et cetera. But for some reason, uh, and I don't think that that has been fully explored yet, uh, it is clearly much more common in in, uh, in Asia. And before your drug, what what is the standard of care or indeed what is the standard of care still? So, uh, so in terms of kind of, so our drug was the very first one to be approved ever uh, globally in this indication. So there was previously no approved drug in this indication. Uh, so this is obviously super exciting to be able to truly bring something new and innovative uh, to this population uh, of rare diseases. Um, so what basically happens, and, and this is still the case obviously, is that uh, in many kind of um, kidney diseases, what will happen is if you have a kidney disease, uh, your physician will put you on blood pressure lowering agents. So so-called rasplicade, that can be an ACE or an ARB. So these are blood pressure lowering. So that's really something, because if you can think about it, it takes the pressure, if you like, off the kidney, because obviously the kidney filtrates your blood. So it takes the, the pressure off of that. Um, and that can help symptomatically at least, uh, and maybe potentially kind of make, uh, you know, make your disease, uh, you know, go a little bit slower, hopefully. But that's really kind of mainly from a symptomatic perspective. Um, but since there was nothing approved, there's really kind of a, you know, a wide variety of, a, of different kind of off-label alternatives that physicians have been trying, but obviously uh, with uh, not very great success since there are still, a, you know, the vast, you know, large number of patients still progress towards end-stage renal disease. So the estimate is that about 50% or more of those diagnosed, despite everything that's out there, uh, today, obviously, continue to progress towards end-stage renal disease. 
Um, and so, uh, obviously, a thrilling development. Where are you in the approval process globally with this drug? Yeah, so we have been approved in the U.S. Um, so we kind of, our first commercial sale in the U.S. was in January of 2022. Um, and then actually in uh, Europe, we were uh, approved in July of 2022. Um, and then in China, it is going through regulatory review. Uh, and so we are estimating that there will be a decision in China from the regulators there in the second half of this year. And what's reimbursement like in China? I, I don't, it never even occurred to me before researching your company how different that could be. Yeah, so actually um, China also has a, a system, I guess, that's that's more similar to Europe, I would say, than than to the U.S., um, so clearly there is a an insured population um, that actually, so you can introduce uh, medications and drugs in China uh, on the basis of just kind of people kind of paying out of pocket or, or paying kind of based on their insurances. But that is quite a small number, uh, just as it is in Europe, you have the same, um, the same situation. Um, but then obviously what people would like to do is that there is a negotiation um, in order to be kind of reimbursed by the government. So there is a kind of reimbursement list, uh, which you then negotiate with the state, just like you do in Europe, but this is a one-payer uh, kind of negotiation where uh, the drug price is set by uh, through that kind of process of negotiation uh, in order for you to be reimbursed. And then obviously that will cover uh, you know the you know the full population rather than just uh, those who may have a kind of a private insurance. I read that you guys received a, uh, what was referred to as a milestone payment from the European Commission last year. Explain that to me and explain sort of where, because, you know, I, I'm familiar with the U.S. system where companies foot the entire bill to, to develop their drug, to get through all three phases of trials and then have to come up with the money to market the drug and so on, uh, and manufacture, of course. But how does that work in Europe and, and is it similar with China? So actually, that is very similar in all three countries. There's no kind of, there's no kind of specific, uh, specifically kind of cheaper ways of of kind of developing drugs in in uh, in Europe or in China from a kind of uh, regulatory. Obviously, the resources might cost differently. It might be more expensive uh, to get kind of a U.S. clinic to run a trial uh, than it might be to get a Chinese clinic or a European clinic to run a trial. But basically, there's no kind of payments from the state or contributions from government, et cetera, to, to the actual cost of, of the development program. That is very much the same. Uh, but the cost obviously can vary uh, depending on how much, how much, you know, how expensive it is to run different, uh, you know, diff run clinical trials in different uh, regions. So as you go forward here, now you've, you've got some uh, considerable um, uh, effort still with some with your other drugs. Where are you with those other uh, sort of main two drugs? So our pipeline, basically, we're still kind of then in R&D. Uh, and so we're running a phase two slash three trial, so a late stage trial in this uh, in kind of the liver indication called primary biliary cholangitis, uh, which is also a global trial. So it's a fairly large trial, um, you know, just under 100, over 100, obviously, kind of um, different clinical uh, uh, clinical sites participating. Uh, and we're also running a phase two trial, which is more about what we call a proof of concept trial in uh, head and neck cancer. And this is in order for us to try and see if we can show the same things in the clinic that we've seen in the preclinical phase, so seen in animal models, et cetera. Um, and so this head and neck is something where the the actual kind of curative ability of a lot of the drugs that are on the market now are, are quite limited. 
Uh, and so again, that's something where we feel that with uh, with cetanaxib, this NOx inhibitors, they're called uh, enzymes. So with them, we think that we have an opportunity to significantly improve uh, the outcomes uh, in some of these um, different kind of uh, indications. The, the, the world for um, all kinds of early stage companies and funding has certainly changed. Um, uh, my office space in particular has surrounded by all these startup people who are contemplating a very different world where they can't raise money from venture capitalists and so on, the seed rounds at least. Uh, but the same is true for biotech, right, where we, where we saw checks were much more easily writ written, secondary offerings were much more easily accepted by the markets uh, two years ago than they are today. Where are you in terms of funding all of this going forward? And and because uh, looking at your historic burn rate, um, you know it's 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 terrifying times for for your company. Yeah, I mean, I think we're obviously I think we're very lucky because we do have a commercial product that actually kind of brings in revenues, uh, and we're just in the early stages of launching that product. So obviously, we're expecting to see quite significant growth in those revenues over time. Uh, so obviously we have an independent source uh, of uh, of revenues coming into the company uh, that obviously can help fund any kind of development programs. Uh, we also have done quite a lot of partnerships. So we're only really focusing uh, ourselves on commercializing in the US. Uh, and so we have partners both in China, in Europe, and now in Japan. Uh, and with those type of <clears throat> transactions as well, that brings in what we refer to as non-dilutive financing. So we get upfront payments from those companies in terms of uh, when we out-license our drug to them and we get milestones for them during the kind of development or commercialization of the product. And that obviously also contributes to, uh, to, to kind of the cash flow that we get into the company. So from that perspective, uh, I think we're, you know, we were very lucky in that we, you know, we, we didn't have to raise any capital last year uh, really at all. We kind of really brought in all the capital either through debt financing or these out licensing, et cetera. So for, for quite a long time, uh, we have been kind of funding the company through non-dilutive financing events. And um, and so I think with a commercial product that's on the market, um, you know, we certainly believe that with the cash that we have at hand today, uh, that we are funded to profitability. So so you think you, there's no more fundraisers necessary to keep this company alive? Exactly. That, oh, because because again, the, the the burn rate looks like a different kind of number. It looks like it looks like nine months to go, and then then vapor or some kind of financing that's going to be of some size. No, no, I I I don't think so, uh, because obviously with the with the fact that we have a substantial amount of cash on our balance sheet, uh, in combination with the fact that we're getting revenues, which again, obviously, it is uh, all kind of based on the fact that we should. A continue to kind of you know increase revenues for this product that we've just launched. That is obviously one of the uh, you know you know components of that. But uh, from our perspective, we think that the combination of the cash that we have on hand uh, and the kind of uh, you know continuing to deliver on the business plan of our commercial product uh, that we are uh, indeed fully funded. And so, what's the biggest milestone you're focused on in the next six months then for the company? Is that phase two results? So actually the, uh, so, three results? so I think we have us, even the, for the product that's already approved and being commercialized, uh, it was approved according to uh, something called uh, an accelerated approval or conditional approval because it was approved on a surrogate marker. So not what the regulators uh, refer to as a clinical endpoint. Um, and so there is a confirmatory part of the phase three program that is completing 
uh, the first half of this year. So from that perspective, uh, that's really going to give us not only kind of the, the, the efficacy and safety of the drug, but really kind of the long-term uh, kind of benefit or implications for on clinical endpoints. So in this case, because it's a kidney disease that we're studying, in this case, it would be the actual filtration rate of the kidney, also known as EGFR. Um, so I think that data is going to be very interesting in terms of uh, looking at really kind of the long-term implications, which we hope obviously based on some of the data that we've already seen and some of uh, other things. So we, we obviously looking for this to be disease modifying, not just kind of helping out kind of with symptoms, but truly being able to, you know, delay dialysis or keep people out of dialysis or transplantation uh, of their kidneys. So that data I think will be very exciting to see um, because actually that would then contribute to, uh, you know, this drug's ability to, to be truly disease modifying. We wish you a lot of luck in that, Renee. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Renee uh, Aguilar Lukander uh, joining us from Stockholm. And the company is Kaliditas, and we appreciate your time. Thank you. All right, coming up next, the bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about Kaliditas right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage, connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And if you're enjoying the Drill Down podcast, let somebody else know. Maybe it's a business school classmate of yours. Perhaps it's even someone uh, who you can reach out to with uh, iTunes and leave a review telling them why you like this show so they can also enjoy the Drill Down podcast. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We are back with the Drill Down Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about Kaliditas. And no, it is not the number of ways I tried to pronounce the name of that company or its CEO. That's almost yeah, uncountable. That was a fail. It was, it was embarrassing, yeah. actually. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just going to put it out there. Very embarrassing. Sorry about that. Swede. Renee, I know it looks like I could sorry. pass. It looks like I could pass as a Swede, but no. You would be laughed off the Swedish streets. Anyway, what's the bite? Vikings. My goodness. Well, so here, so here is, well, how many kidney transplants, Isaac, would you guess were done in America last year? Kidney transplants in America. Yes. Uh, I mean, I really have no frame of reference here, but I would go with, there's, you know, there's roughly almost 400 million Americans. So let's say that there were 2 million kidney transplants. So last year there was a record number of kidney transplants. Okay. I was shocked uh, having once memorized this number for another investment that I had years ago. Not that I have an investment in this at all, bleeding tests or anything else uh, in this arena. Okay. But record number of kidney transplants last year, it was not 2 million. It was not 200,000. There were 25,498 kidney transplants in America last year. That's it. Well, that seems reasonable. When I said two million, I was like, "Wait a minute, two million. So what? What? So what's the number again? It's twenty twenty five thousand four hundred ninety eight kidney transplants um, in the U.S. in twenty twenty two. And that's not a lot. Uh, and the problem that's is not, but that's kidneys. a record amount. You said uh, it is a record amount. Uh, when I had this I had an investment in a company that was doing something related to kidneys about five or six years ago, and the number was seventeen thousand. 
So, okay. uh, so a, a, a huge record increase, high. and yet, uh, and yeah. yet, um, people have to wait three to five years uh, if they can survive that long to get a kidney transplant. Um, there are uh, um, uh, hundreds of thousands of people waiting for kidney transplants who can't get them because there aren't enough kidneys. Um, and mm. I'm, I'm thinking of my friend, uh, uh, the film director, Declan O'Brien, who died a year ago this week. And when he and I would be in the car and a motorcycle would pass, he's like, oh, those damn organ donors. Because he believed <laughs> that eventually the outcome of a motorcycle rider was going to be an organ donation. But uh, kidney transplants are limited by the number of kidneys more than anything else. And there is an increasing need for them, and yet there just aren't enough, even as we hit record numbers, kidney transplants. So Kaliditas uh, looking for ways to help us get and avoid the necessity of a kidney transplant. Thank you, Kaliditas. Thank you All for right. that. We appreciate your time today. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson stitched this all together with a fantastic, extraordinary edit. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.